What is up, Bitcoiners? Welcome back to FedWatch, sitting here with Ansel. We got quite the list of notes here, a lot of macro, a lot of things happening in the world of central banks, a lot of things happening in the world of Bitcoin. Bitcoin is in the spotlight once again on the national stage, on the international stage. Um, Ansel, how's it going? Long time to talk. Yeah. Oh, man. Good to see you. And yeah, it's going great. Um, lots. Of, I mean, it, we just talked last week, but so much has happened in that week that it's it feels like a month ago. Yeah, well, I mean, when this uh, this news hit two weeks ago about the infrastructure bill, um, that's kind of been dominating the headlines. But um, that may be the Bitcoin headlines, but a lot has been happening kind of in the world at large beyond that. So uh, I'm excited that we're going to be able to not only dive into like the latest with this infrastructure bill, um, Bitcoin's dynamics with the infrastructure bill, but also catch the listeners up with, you know, what else is happening in the world? Because it's not just this infrastructure bill, even though it's kind of been dominating the Bitcoin news cycle. Absolutely. And I, I did throw these uh, kind of outline for us uh, through it together. And I did mention the infrastructure bill at the end. Uh, you're probably going to have way more detail on that than I am. Of course, I followed it, but um, I'm, I bet you followed it way more precisely than I did. So should we jump right in with the Fed news? I have Fed news, then China news, um, and then we can talk about the infrastructure bill. Let's do it. What's happening at the Fed? Okay, so I'm just going to share my screen if I can. And we're going to start with... This first, uh, the the Fed is increasing talks about a taper. Um, you know, every couple of weeks, it seems like a few more headlines come out and a lot of people are talking about the taper. And here from Reuters, Fed officials are saying tapering is near. Um, Atlanta Federal Reserve Bank President uh, Raphael Bostic said he is eyeing the fourth quarter for the start of a bond purchase taper, but it is a but is open to an even earlier start if the job market keeps its uh, recent torrid pace of improvement. I mean, there's a lot in there because I maybe we can talk about this in another episode. But um, you know, everyone's saying that the job market is improving, but is it really? Uh, right now, there's more um, job openings than unemployed, and that that ratio typically happens at the top of market cycles, not at any sort of bottom. So um, that's very interesting. But as you can see, a lot of people continue to talk about this taper. We did last week say that there were some kind of unique creative thoughts going on about maybe they want to taper mortgage-backed security purchases and not treasury purchases as part of QE. Um, haven't heard any updates in that regard, but um, you know, they're, they're maybe starting to think about different ways that they can do a taper without causing a taper tantrum. So do you have any top uh, questions or comments on that? And we can move on to the next part. So, um, yeah, I mean, just to kind of refresh on like uh, what you're mentioning about tapering in mortgages rather than um, other purchases, um, pretty much what's happening is like there's a, a lot of different assets that um, the Fed has been buying throughout these crises and they keep kind of like expanding to new things that they can buy. Um, and one of the older things that they have been buying are these mortgage-backed securities that are associated with 2008. Is that correct? And so um, as part of like the narrative of tapering, they can taper throughout kind of like this, this different scope of things that they are um, you know, currently purchasing and have facilities set up for. Um, and, you know, if they can kind of spin the narrative, like we're tapering while kind of like maybe reallocating or taking tapering from areas that, you know, aren't necessarily presently hemorrhaging, um, presently an issue. Uh, but even still, you know, that we do not know the second, third, fourth order effects of whatever that may be, you know, uh, maybe the mortgage backed security market um, is heavily reliant on this kind of uh, purchasing, you know, we don't know. We don't know. Again, these are complex uh, and kind of like intertwined systems. Yeah, exactly. And they're, I mean, they think they're being creative and maybe they are because the very next story is about the reverse repo stuff. Um, as we've been detailing on the show almost every week, the, I'm going to share my screen again real quick. Um, 
the overnight repo is just exploding. So uh, Monday, the number was 981 billion. We did pass last week $1 trillion overnight, and it just is an upward to the right sort of chart. So some experts like um, Polz, uh, what is his name? Zoltan Polznar from Credit Suisse. He's an analyst for Credit Suisse. Um, he's estimating up to $2 trillion. This can get up to $2 trillion. So um, I think they're kind of scared of this. Uh, there is and I've said before that this is not like imminent danger, but it is showing a very like weak, fragile market. Um, one of the things we did mention last week that we didn't get into um, heavily was this standing uh, standing repurchase facility that was going to be going on at the Fed. And this is the opposite of reverse repo. So reverse repo is when financial entities bring cash to the Fed and they get collateral or securities. Um, they can use those any way they want. They can use those in, in the open market repo. They can repledge them. They can do whatever. Um, but this repo facility is the opposite way. So the banks or the financial entities will bring um, the securities to the Fed and the Fed will give them dollars. Now, one of the things during a taper tantrum um, or maybe even a double dip recession or, or something like that, uh, there is a this collateral shortage can very quickly turn into a dollar shortage. Um, so I think that's what they're kind of worried about in this creating the standing facility is another taper tantrum like we saw back from when they tried to taper the first time after the great financial crisis. Um, and if it turns into a dollar shortage, they want to have this standing facility ready to go. So instead of selling these uh, U.S. treasuries on the open market, um, these entities can go to the Fed and repo them. And that has a, a, a way of keeping the prices high. Because if, you know, obviously if supply gets, uh, if supply floods the market, as people are rushing to get dollars, then it could uh, really uh, spike rates, right? And drop the price of these things. So um, I think this is a way to ease the effects of a taper tantrum. And so what that tells me is that most likely a, ta a taper of some sort is coming later this year, maybe at the very beginning of the fourth quarter, like they're starting to signal out there, put out there uh, in the headlines that they are going to be tapering in the fourth quarter. I think that's uh, actually quite likely looking at these standing repo facilities. And I honestly am kind of out of my depths when talking about, you know, some of these creative tools that they're using in facilities. But what it sounds like to me is that the Fed is like playing both sides of the market here. On one side, they are injecting securities and collateral into the system. And now they're preparing to, again, be in position to inject cash for securities. So uh, they're, they're really setting up to kind of like completely attempt to manipulate the market. Again, like you always have to add the asterisks that you know, they're trying to manipulate something that they don't actually control, uh, which, you know, means that they, you know, don't have all the power and uh, things can go in ways that they don't expect, which they pretty much always do. Um, but I guess what what do you have to add on to that in terms of like kind of your analysis or your opinion? Well, the, the kind of the reason why the Fed is stuck is because they they are they can't get rates up, actually. You know, these rates are stuck at zero. And remember, the reverse repo floor that they put in was the five basis points. And the short-term treasury bills were still yielding under five basis points, even when the Fed tried to set a floor at five. And so they're, they're stuck at zero, and they can't get off zero. And any last drop of extra deposits or extra reserves that these banks have, they're going to the reverse repo. And so um, I think the Fed is kind of concerned about this. And this is kind of a trick to get off, possibly put a floor at 25 basis points, because that is um, what they said they're going to be offering this facility at 25 basis points, both to domestic and to foreign. So um, I don't know. I think they're maybe trying all sorts of different things to get back control of back control of some section of this, this, uh, rate uh, yield curve so can you can you actually share that uh reverse repo chart again just because it 
It is so drastic. I mean, honestly, the only thing that looks similar to it is like the Bitcoin chart in terms of like the price action in that time period. But like, oh my God, like that's just blowing out um, 2001, 2007, like everything in the past. Oh, sorry. No, yeah, that's 2017. 2017. And all, well, all of these uh, spikes in the past also ended at or uh, were at the end of the quarter. As people were rebalancing their books, they needed some overnight liquidity, you know, just to get them past the end of the quarter. All of these spikes are like, you know, between the third quarter and fourth quarter, fourth quarter and first quarter. And uh, so, yeah, this was and even this little blip here is right at the end of the first quarter of this year. And so, you know, this is unprecedented. There's no other time in the history of the Federal Reserve that they've had anything like this going on. Uh, can you? I guess, yeah, I mean, and again, if you're just like looking at the bottom, if you zoomed all the way back again, nothing, nothing looks like, like this, like this is uh, really insane. You should tweet this chart out, Ansel. Will do. Just yeah, I included it with last, I, I included it with last week's show notes, but yeah, every week it keeps climbing and that's, uh, it's pretty incredible to watch. Man, this is insane. Um, okay, well, I mean, in terms of, you know, what's happening with the Fed, you know, a pretty huge thing that's happening is mm -hmm. uh, there seems to be scrutiny and pressure on Powell, um, who, you know, has been, you know, the shining arbiter um, of reason guiding America through the COVID crisis. Um, can you talk about, um, you know, the trouble uh, for Jay Powell? Yeah, so he's coming up for his, like we did, we mentioned this last time also, that he is coming up on the end of his first term. And so they are appointed by the president. The, the chairman are appointed by the president for a four-year term. And he's coming up at the end of his term here. And I, last week I said it was November, but it's actually in February. So he has a couple extra months. Um, I think he's pretty popular with the administration. He's pretty popular with bankers out there. Uh, but there's a few people that he's not very popular with. And I'm going to share my screen again. So this is... Um, some headlines recently. Uh, where is it? Uh oh. I have to get back to it. Okay, here we go. Progressive opposition to Powell clouds his chances for second term as Fed chairman. And in here, some progressives um, are unhappy with his bent toward easy financial regulations that were put in place after the 2008 financial crisis and think the central bank should have someone more in sync with democratic politics in charge. If Mr. Powell isn't given a new four-year term next February, when his current term expires, the leading contender for the job is Lael Brainerd. So, uh, you know, we have to talk about her too because she, her name continues to come up over and over. And this was a, a headline that I found. Uh, she talked uh, at some, she made a speech somewhere, and this is from August 1st. And here she's saying, U.S. needs CBDC for international use cases. Uh, in here, she's quoted as, the dollar is very dominant in international payments. And if you have the other major jurisdictions in the world with digital currency, a CBDC offering, and the US doesn't have one, I just, I can't wrap my head around that. It just doesn't sound like a, a sustainable future to me. So um, what are your thoughts on Lael Brainerd maybe taking over the Fed? And she seems to be much more friendly to this idea of a CBDC, which Powell has stiff-armed the whole time. So in terms of uh, in terms of Powell and his opinion towards CBDCs, he's he's pretty much been stiff-arming it, but I guess like in the last month or so, he has said, you know, positive or progressing research on CBDCs. I think the Fed is releasing a white paper soon, stuff like that. So maybe there's just a lot of pressure you know, to get in on the CBDC game. Um, personally, I think CBDC is the next, you know, iteration of blockchain, not Bitcoin. It's CBDC, not Bitcoin. Like we need to innovate in this area. Um, so it's going to be a colossal waste of money and potentially the downfall of a lot of central banks simultaneously. But um, with that being said, um, switching to a, a Baynard, I, I'd, rather than her position on CBDCs, I'm be more interested in like what's her position on Bitcoin, crypto generally, open source networks, and if she's going to be adversarial because um, it seems as though Democrats in general have had a negative view on 
on Bitcoin and crypto um, and have had a much more statist fiat-oriented uh, view. Um, and I'm curious if they will you know, be pushing that agenda and what her perspective is. Is, uh, is she going to be championing a CBDC and attacking open networks? Or is she going to just be pro-internet currencies in general? I think that's more important to me than anything, uh, you know, the CBDC question in general, because personally, I think it's just a false flag. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I don't know what her take is on Bitcoin other than um, I, if I can remember correctly, her past statements are, you know, very um, just flat, like, oh, we need to, you know, make sure innovation happens and we don't want to squash innovation, but Bitcoin is used for money laundering and yada, yada, yada. So um, I don't know specifically what her deeper thoughts are on it, but uh, if she is on the CBDC camp, I mean, it makes sense that she would go down the more authoritarian trying to squash Bitcoin route. So um, I don't know, but she, she is kind of fighting an uphill battle at the Fed. So this was another one that uh, I wrote about just recently on my newsletter, BitcoinandMarkets.com. This is from Fed. Oh, I need to share my screen again. I'm sorry, dude. Um, so this is from Fed Reserve Governor Christopher Waller, and he had this... Uh, talk where he talked specifically about CBDCs for 30 minutes. And it was, it was really, really good because he sounded very sane and very rational. Um, he's, I guess, the right-hand man of Jay Powell, and they are right in sync with this. So I'll just read a, a few of his quotes here from this, this video. At this early juncture in Fed discussions, I think the first order of business is to ask whether there is a compelling need for the Fed to create a digital currency. I am highly skeptical. In all the recent exuberance about CBDCs, advocates point to many potential benefits of a Federal Reserve digital currency, but they often fail to ask a simple question. What problem would a CBDC solve? Alternatively, what market failure or inefficiency demands this specific intervention? After careful consideration, I am not convinced as of yet that a CBDC would solve any existing problems that is not being addressed more promptly and efficiently by other initiatives. He continues, since these problems are primarily technological and there, there's no reason to think the Federal Reserve can develop cheaper technology than private firms, it seems unlikely that the Federal Reserve would be able to process CBDC payments at a materially, materially lower cost than existing private sector payment services. I see no reason to expect the world will flock to a Chinese CBDC or any other. Why would non-Chinese firms suddenly desire to have all their financial transactions monitored by the Chinese government? Why would this induce non-Chinese firms to denominate the contracts and invoice trading activities in the Chinese currency rather than the U.S. dollar? So I will stop sharing. And what are your thoughts on that? I mean, again, it's interesting to see all of these different personalities within the Fed having uh, pretty complex opinions, right? And it seems like this person is a lot more aligned with um, how we perceive, you know, what creates, you know, networks and monetary network effects and, you know, you know, what we assume to be dollar dominance right now. I mean, I would say that, okay, hey, Brainerd, Yes, the U.S. doesn't have an official CBDC, but in terms of actual fiat crypto usage, like the dollar is the dominant currency. And that was a free market solution. It had nothing to do with you, right? So you have USDC, you have USDT, uh, you have all these other attempts to create dollars. You have all these other, um, you know, synthetic dollars available. Um, and it's all dollars. Like people use Tether heavily. People rely on Tether heavily. So um, I don't know. Tether can freeze accounts. There was a hack today in DeFi and, te you know, Paulo Arduino from, from Bitfinex just, yep, frozen. Don't worry about it. We're good here. So like, you know, when do they start freezing other things that people realize that this thing is, is you know, very much a central, you know, it's just one co-op away from being a central bank digital currency. You know, if the US was really serious about getting in on the CBDC game, boom, just co-opt all of the stable coins and then 
and then you know merge merge the accounts. There you go. You're good to go. You already have the network effect. Um, well, uh, I'm curious if they try to make a move like that or if they're stupid enough to try to just launch something themselves, right? Because that's where I, I really don't think maybe China has the biggest advantage on launching something themselves, but I just don't think that anyone is going to successfully you know, launch one of these currencies and out-compete these market-delivered solutions. Well, yeah, Powell has said, um, we've covered that, that um, these like Tether and other stable coins resemble banks. And so, you know, it would be, they would fall right under the same banking regulations. They would fall right under the same way that banks make loans today to print money. That's how money is actually printed is through the commercial banking system. And so he, you know, he was likening these digital dollars to exactly what we've always had bank dollars, bank notes. And so I thought that's very interesting. And really, it's it's very simple. And these people at the Federal Reserve, uh, Powell and this Waller, seem to be really clued in. And in their meetings, in their secret backdoor meetings or behind-the-scenes meetings, they will be able to bring up these very simple rebuttals to Brainerd or to others that try to uh, push something like this through. So I think a CBDC would most definitely, in the United States, would have to be a congressional thing. I, I don't think that the Fed would ever be able to launch anything on their own. So that's at least, to me, that's um, comforting to know that the Federal Reserve could not overstep in that way. All right, Bitcoiners, I want to tell you about our newest sponsor. This show is brought to you by Ledin.io. I have been super, super impressed with the guys over at Ledin. I've actually known the co-founders, Adam and Mauricio, for a very long time. I've had the pleasure to watch them build Ledin up from a tiny, tiny startup to now a super impressive institutional grade Bitcoin and crypto lender. Y'all, I'm so impressed with these guys. They are offering some of the best rates out there. I don't think anyone even comes close to touching them. You can get 6.1% APY on your first two Bitcoin that you deposit into Ledin interest accounts, and you can get 8.5% US on USDC deposits. I mean, I know all the competitors. They're not even close. If you're going to put your crypto and your Bitcoin into an interest account, Ledin is by far the best. And on top of that, like I said, these guys are hardcore Bitcoiners and they know the products and the services that Bitcoiners want and appreciate. They came up with B2X. It allows you to put your Bitcoin in, they leverage it up, and you can, with one click of the mouse, get twice the exposure to Bitcoin. So if you're super bullish, Ledin has you covered with a super, super easy way to get leverage with B2X. And then on top of that, they know that Bitcoiners care about your reserves. They know that Bitcoiners don't like under-reserved and not full-reserved financial institutions. So they are pushing the frontier in transparency in the digital asset lending space. And they are the first digital asset lender to do a full proof of reserves and proof of attestation through a Mariano LLC, a public accounting firm. So the letting guys, they know what Bitcoin is like. They are legit. I encourage you guys to check them out. Do your own research and go to ledin.io. That is L-E-D-N.io and learn more. Bitcoiners, I want to tell you guys about The Deep Dive. The Deep Dive is a new premium newsletter from the Bitcoin Magazine team in conjunction with my man, BTCization, Dylan LeClaire. Dylan is such a multifaceted and wide-ranging analyst. He does everything from on-chain analytics to macro uh, analysis to uh, you know hash rate and all that kind of good stuff. He does it all. He breaks down everything that's happening every single day with his daily dive. He's going to dive into what is happening in the market that day. So that way you don't have to pay attention to Twitter. You don't have to pay attention to anything else. You can just pay attention to the deep dive and he has you covered. And at the end of the week, guess what? You get a weekly recap. And at the end of the month, hey, we have a freaking report, a beautiful PDF breaking down all the activity of that entire month, what it means for Bitcoin what you can expect moving forward. The Bitcoin market is going to moon. We are here to make sure that we maximize your stack. Go to members.bitcoinmagazine.com to sign up today. And if you use promo code BITS, you can get one month for free. So again, the deep dive, I've been checking it out every day and you should too. Back to the show. 
I mean, I don't know about that. If they could not, um, and it just depends on the political appetite. So I definitely think that like these are reasons why it doesn't make sense in our opinion, right? Also, we're Bitcoin bulls. Um, but on the flip side, like the marketing hype is real. The political um, pressure is real. Powell is putting out this white paper, um, you know, for whatever reason. Um, so uh, I definitely think that, you know, <laughs> when in fiat world, marketing matters a lot. So we're mm-hmm. operating in fiat world and this is peak fiat. So, you know, honestly, that's a benefit for Bitcoin because these guys get to distract themselves with this with this stuff. Uh, going back to Brainerd, she's been <laughs> writing a lot and she's been speaking a lot, right? Like she's doing the things to, to be, be the front runner, right? To be the thought leader. Um, so I'd be interested to see um, it sounds like Powell has a very good chance of holding his role, um, but it w- maybe that's why he is posturing now. I say like, oh yeah, I'm open to CBDCs, blah, blah, blah. Like just needs to get reinstated. So I don't know. I don't know. There's politics at play here. Yeah, and there's a lot of different connections because Gensler, now chairman at the SEC, he served with MIT, right? He taught a, a class for the MIT initiative on blockchain and, and digital currencies or whatever. And, you know, MIT is working with the Fed. And so it's very interesting, all these different connections that you can start drawing between the SEC, the Treasury, the Federal Reserve. Um, and then what I thought, I mean, maybe we can jump into this now. I don't know, but I thought the bombshell was when the White House offered that amendment that exempted proof of work. And when you take that in context of all of the connections of people sitting on different chairmanships and different boards, tracing it back through MIT, and, you know, I I think that it's, you could go down a, a conspiracy theory rabbit hole on this in a good way, that it will work out well for Bitcoin. Have you yeah, thought about well, that? I- I definitely want to talk about that when we touch on the infra bill. I know log scale, <laughs> a great, uh, a great person and Nim on Twitter, um, put together a great thread, um, detailing his theories there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I personally think there's, there's fifth pillars everywhere. There's Bitcoin insiders everywhere. So, um, who knows? Um, but let's talk about China because I think for a lot of Bitcoiners who listen to this show, um, we are their main source of news on China and international politics and macro. So um, China is huge. Um, there's a lot of fear, uncertainty, doubt regarding China at all times in general about everything. So, um, you know, what's happening in China? Well, I didn't pull the headline specifically to share my screen on this one, but um, there's talk right now of recession in China and they are People are recommending that maybe this is time for the PBOC to lower rates uh, because they, you know, they people are seeing the stock market falling. I think think it fell like between six and eight percent within a week, uh, to- a week's time, a couple weeks ago, and so people are starting to see that there's some slowdown in China. Also, um, the macro numbers on oil and copper and other commodity inputs, you know, imports into China are slowing. And so that means obviously that the manufacturing export economy is slowing over there in China. They have an increase in COVID numbers. Um, They have lockdowns going in, I don't know, I think it was over half of their provinces right now, um, affecting Beijing as well. They have very strict border policies, um, you know, reinstated. And so COVID is really causing a lot of problems over there. And lastly, I'll just put out there the floods that they've had. They've had the worst floods in like the last 50 years recently. And this is very important for the CCP because um, going back thousands of years, you know, the ruling party was always always uh, was ruling by the mandate of heaven. And that originally came about from floods. So the rulers that could control the floods they had the mandate of heaven. And so they got to continue ruling. And as soon as there was some bad floods, you know, then the administration or the emperor at the time would have to really worry about being overthrown uh, because the, the people would see the mandate of heaven has been withdrawn. So you have floods, COVID, recession. I think it's, it's not looking super good over there in China. Now, one thing I do have to share 
I'll share my screen here again real quick, is a thread by somebody, if I can bring it up, is this last, <laughs> the last bear standing on Twitter. And he has this great uh, tweet thread that goes on and on and on about Evergrande. Now, Evergrande is the largest, um, and I'll share this, I'll share this link in the show notes for people, but um, Evergrande is the largest real estate developer in China. And they're estimated to have over $100 billion in direct debt, but it could be in the hundreds of billions for all sorts of different debt that they might not have completely legitimately on their books. But they've been in a slow motion default for about a year, and it seems to be accelerating. So if they're, you know, if this big, too big to fail type entity over there in China is accelerating into some sort of debt default, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of debt that could be a real big um, contributor to a recession. So all of these things put together, uh, I am thinking that China is going to be, uh, some sort of China slowdown is going to be coming in the next three months or so. I mean, that that's pretty crazy set of circumstances all coming together. I mean, you have been paying attention and you have been a staunch China bear for as long as I've known you. So, um, you know, Maybe you're right here. Um, you know, again, it, it does seem. Well, Go for it. Well, sorry to interrupt. I, I used to be a China bull back when I was a gold bug. And I was like, you know, they're importing all this gold. And then I get into Bitcoin and they are a big hub for mining. And so, you know, I was and for trading. They had all the 2016 and they had all most of the trading, Bitcoin trading. And so I was a very big. China bull back then, but over the last two two to three years, yes, I have majorly shifted my position on China to be very bearish. And I guess you know my bearish position on China. You know, it's difficult to tell the short and long term or short and medium term, but I think in the long term, authoritarianism, top down control, does not work. So first principle thinking there is that they will fuck themselves. And like you said, they were dominating in Bitcoin. And guess what? They fucked themselves, both in mining and in trading, because they're you know trying to control, trying to own this thing and uh, didn't let their economy virgin. Um, I forgot who, where I was hearing. Actually, no, it was on a Bitcoin Twitter spaces with Alan Farrington, Alex Fedsky, and then um, um, Bern, um, Bern Hoder, um, who I think is like a fintech uh, blogger. Um, I'll, I'll put him in the show notes, but they were talking about how, um, you know, the brilliance of, you know, the CCP, you know, in the seventies was that they realized that in order to have the true communist vision, they first had to create industry in China to then nationalize and co-opt. They had to build up the infrastructure and they needed, you know, some sort of capitalistic, uh, motive, motivation, um, and, and asset allocation to do that. And it seems as though, you know, we're we're reaching that point where it seems as though China, the, the Chinese political party is really starting to clamp down across every aspect and try to like maybe do this this complete um nationalization of of the, the country um and their and what they're trying to do. And I feel like as soon as they do that, that's when it's over. Like that's when they've killed themselves because that's when they effectively take themselves um, out of the market, they effectively um, put themselves at a you know asset allocation disadvantage, uh, and they start really marginalizing their people in a significant way. And it's you know that we know the second, third, fourth order of the fallout from that. So um, I don't know. Again, uh, I feel like I'm rambling here, but you know the the fact that this is happening now, as soon as they're trying to do this takedown, as soon as they try to do the the Hong Kong thing, uh, it's just. It's almost like poetic justice, but, you know, just, uh, you know, reality is just like, I feel like as I just like have lived my short life, uh, that that's kind of what I've been experiencing is like, you know, these things just the fundamentals matter in, a, in the long run. Yeah, fundamentals and, and you put the nail on it there um, is that authoritarian top down communist countries, their economy is not going to function as well. And yes, part of the um, socialist or um, Marxist 
idea ideology is that yes, you have first have capitalism, but eventually capitalism must be overthrown in a workers' rebellion or whatever you know revolt. And so yeah, they they let uh, capitalism flourish, and now it's turning into the crackdown time. So. Maybe they're going to turn into another North Korea. Maybe the CCP is going to have problems just keeping power. Um, but this is going to be a huge story in the next, you know, five years. There, there is no Thucydides trap here. Okay, this is China is most likely the declining power and the U.S. is most likely the rising power. So something fun to watch over the next five years. Okay, well, again, like I would say that for me, one of the major macro themes that I have seen is that the U.S. embodies decentralization more than most countries in the world. And that's the fundamental that has that it really has going for it. And, you know, we've seen a lot of like, let's just say the existing power structure trying to do what other power structures, other government entities have done. And there are mechanisms for the people to push back significantly. Um, and I think this infrastructure bill um, with the Bitcoin community specifically has shown that ability, right? Has has exposed something to a very powerful and active and motivated cohort of people within the U.S. Uh, and that is that you can affect the political process with your numbers, right? Um, and you can play that game in favor of Bitcoin. Um, and you know, I think if zooming out, just seeing you know, other countries going back into lockdown and, you know, the, the U.S. is doing things I don't like. New York is doing things I don't like, but uh, there's still no lockdown talk. Like the decentralization work, Texas and Florida have put enough pressure on the other states that they can't go back into lockdown as easily. They can't crumble to totalitarianism as easily. So I'm kind of interested on what your take is on like how you've been digesting this infrastructure bill, how you've been digesting, witnessing the U.S.'s anti-fragility and uh, and decentralization and, uh, I guess, even choice market um, dynamics in play compared to other countries throughout the last uh, 18, two years, 18 months, two years. Well, just to start off with, um, as a disclaimer, I am a staunch libertarian um, anarchist type, crypto anarchist. I think the less intervention, the better, the less government that we have in our lives, the, the better. Um, but I thought it was interesting. I, I saw somebody on Twitter say, when, when they said, oh, one senator from Alabama, some 87-year-old senator from Alabama was able to stop this uh, new language from getting in the bill. And somebody was making fun, somebody from Europe was like making fun of the United States, like, oh my gosh, this would never happen over here. But it, it's very interesting that it had to be a consensus vote. And that's very decentralized. I mean, that protects the minority very well. If just one, you know, objection can cancel the whole thing. So um, I thought it was kind of fitting, actually, that this came down to a consensus vote and it didn't pass. So, um, yeah, I think that this whole stuff, I did not like to see people jumping behind certain people out there that were lobbying for Bitcoin and not even for Bitcoin. They were lobbying for crypto. And I didn't like to see people really supporting them. I, I don't support those people. I don't know if I should name them here on the podcast, but um, <laughs> supporting um, these kind of questionable uh, players out there in the Bitcoin space. Also, you saw the most outspoken people against this were these big altcoiners, Novogratz, um, even people like Kraken and uh, you know Jesse Powell from Kraken and what's his name uh, Brian Armstrong from Coinbase, they came out and were very vocal against this. Um, Elon Musk with his Dogecoin uh, proclivities that he has, but uh, the the altcoiners were were very upset about this, and I didn't I don't like to see that because uh, I I did a tw uh, I made a tweet just yesterday saying something about. Uh, Jesse Powell's 20-minute plea to the crypto space to support or, you know, to call your senators and stuff. And I was like, okay, you're, you're at a Bitcoin exchange and you do a 20-minute plea 
to get a call to action to people and you don't mention Bitcoin once. He didn't say the term Bitcoin once in his 20 minute plea in the Bitcoin space. And I said, you're part of the problem. And Jack Dorsey actually responded to me and he said, uh, zoom out. So, you know, whatever. But it's, um, I, I didn't like this became a kumbaya moment because I think Gensler is coming for altcoins. He's coming for centralized uh, scams. And if we, if Bitcoiners are going to put ourselves in the same bucket as these scams, I don't think we should do that. You know, Bitcoin is decentralized. It's the only real project out there. And if we put ourselves in the line and in the basket with all these other cryptos, we're going to, you know, uh, have a much harder time of it, probably get taken down or not taken down, but, you know, um, our whole, whatever we want to accomplish in this country, in the United States, is going to be made much harder by putting ourselves in a basket with other altcoins. And so I did not like that people supported the altcoiners. All right, let's take a quick break from that episode. I want to tell you guys about our sponsor. It is Bitcoin 2022 conference. I am sure you saw the videos. You may have been there in person. Bitcoin 2021 was an absolute smashing success. It was the biggest conference in Bitcoin history, crypto history, whatever history of the digital asset sphere. Bitcoin is number one and the Bitcoin 2021 conference is number one with a bullet. It was an absolutely incredible time. I was working my ass off the whole time, but I got to meet so many incredible community members. And I think the best testament to how amazing Bitcoin 2021 was, was not just all of the amazing, you know, accolades and, uh, and compliments that I got personally and our team got, but also it's the skin in the game in Bitcoin 2022. We have already sold close to 1500 tickets. That is more than 10% of the people, everyone who went to Bitcoin 2021 have already purchased tickets to Bitcoin 2022. We have not released a date. We have not released a city. We have not released anything. That is the biggest compliment. That is the biggest skin in the game of the community being down for this conference. Bitcoin 2022 is going to be bigger than Bitcoin 2021. It's going to be better than Bitcoin 21 in every single way. And we are going to be bringing you the best opportunity to mingle with the biggest, the baddest, the most Bitcoin people on the planet. So join the revolution. Go to b.tc forward slash conference. Get your tickets today. I don't know what the ticket prices are. They are going up. I think they're $249 right now. We just rolled out fiat ticket uh, purchases. All the tickets purchased before today were all purchased in BTC. So get it, guys. Get it. Get this ticket. Be at Bitcoin 2022. See you there. So uh, I, I agree and disagree with you. So um, where we agree, I, I totally agree that, you know, we can say Coin Center, we can say um, any of these other orgs, but pretty much every advocacy group is a crypto blockchain ad, ad, advocacy group. And I personally think we need advocates who are focused on Bitcoin. Like we don't need to be lumping in altcoin asks with our advocation, right? That makes like... Most of these altcoins are security scams. So like, why are the Bitcoin uh, considerations also trying to buy, you know, sidestep, you know, existing securities laws? Like that's just unconsequential to Bitcoin. So I totally agree there. I think that we need a Bitcoin only advocacy um, organization. You responded to me saying, As, you know, they, they're corruptible. All we need is number go up. And I just say, why not both? Like we have Coin Center, we should have Bitcoin Center, right? We, like if if we're gonna be supporting an org, I'd rather support one that's at least only focused on Bitcoin. Um, beyond that, price is just gonna continue to go up. So I'm I'm pretty bullish on multiple levels. On the flip side, like I really really hesitate to say that the SEC is competent enough to take down scams and come go after securities. Okay, why does Ripple still exist? If they were competent, why does Ripple, like this is on their home turf, the most flagrant, the most ridiculous altcoin scam. And it still is functioning. And guess what? They're probably going to leave the US and continue to function despite any sort of legitimate um, action. So like get fucked, SEC. Decentralization works. And honestly, you don't have to be that decentralized to break the current spectrum of enforcement. So 
you know, just accept it. Like the altcoin shit coins, like they're going to be enough to crush the incumbents as part of it. And, you know, and Bitcoin is going to be there as well. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I feel like to some degree, like siding with the SEC, thinking that they're going to do anything legitimate, thinking that they're going to do any sort of regulation can help Bitcoin uh, and can be an, like effectively anti-altcoin. It's just like, it's just not going to happen. Get real. Like, it, like these are incompetent organizations. And, you know, don't tell me otherwise until Ripple's gone. Because like that, that is the real attack vector on the SEC. They have all these SEC lawyers on staff now with enough cash. You can break any of these, you know, <laughs> these foolish enforcement actions. So hey, until Ripple's gone, until EOS and Block One are gone, which they won't be because they already settled for pennies on the dollar of their raise then you can't tell me the SEC is going to do anything to stop illegal securities or protect investors whatsoever. Yeah, I get your point. They arrested John McAfee, but they didn't arrest uh, Brad Garlinghouse. You know, or, yeah, I mean, John McAfee maybe actually was a real threat to them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I get it. But it's, it's not even like the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Um, it's kind of like, I don't care. And I don't want I don't want people to come to the rescue of scams. I don't I don't want obviously I don't want the government intervening. I I, I wish that they didn't have to. I wish that they wouldn't. But that is the way that is like a fact of nature. And so it's the government's going to come after these scams. And Bitcoiners should not feel like we have to go and protect the rest of this industry. You know th this is uh, the Bitcoin market cap is roughly half at this time but it should it's you know 98 percent of the true value in the space is from bitcoin and so we shouldn't have to come to the defense of the two percent that is um you know outsized causing problems so uh, i agree i get what, I agree. I get what you're saying yeah i think i think we're mostly on the same page and yeah hey let's just continue to advocate bitcoin only right like yeah that's all you can do. And I would love to see Bitcoin only advocacy. So, you know, I'm, I'm sick of Coin Center. Coin Center, thank you for whatever. Keep doing whatever. But like, we need an alternative. Like, and we need an alternative that's focused on Bitcoin. I think we, we, that, we got proven that, you know, throughout this process, we were shown mm -hmm. that. Sorry, Jerry Brito. Sorry, Naraj. Sorry, Coin Center. And everyone else who's doing it. Sorry, I don't even know anyone else because their marketing sucks. But like we need, we need, we need Bitcoin Center, okay? Like we, we, we need a few of them. Like give me five, give me five Bitcoin centers, and like let's like let's full swing go. Like give me progressive Bitcoin Center, give me conservative Bitcoin Center, give me every flavor of Bitcoin Center that we that we can have. Like I, I'm down, I'm down. Let's do it. Yeah, each state could put together a Bitcoin Center, and so you would have the Texas Bitcoin Center and the Florida Bitcoin Center. That kind I mean, of stuff. Come on, Bitcoiners, let's make it happen. Like I'm sick. I'm sick of Coin Center. I'm I'm sick of the coins. We got one coin. It's Bitcoin. Um, speaking of Bitcoin, speaking of Bitcoin trickling into the government, we teased this earlier. Log scale, you know, kind of, in yeah. you know, incepted this idea that okay, well, why proof of work was why was that part of uh, the Treasury and the President's amendment or backed amendment? Um, it, you know, it seems to be kind of like against everything that we've heard in terms of like the official narrative towards proof of work. Like, why is that the case? You know, I've speculated, hey, they're isolating proof of work because then they can ESG attack proof of work. But, you know, uh, our, our man log scale and a lot of people are starting to think like, OK, maybe they're just trying to leave an opening for Bitcoin that be truly adopted. Uh, let's get your take on this, because I think you you found this very interesting. Yeah, I did. Um, I'll, I'll put the link to this uh, very in-depth thread by Logscale. And he goes through all these connections of different people working at different agencies, what they have said, not just like they worked at Goldman Sachs and now they sit on the Fed or, you know, whatever. It's actually what they have said about Bitcoin and about altcoins and different things. And Gensler is at the kind of the center of this. So um, I'm not going to go through the whole thing if you guys want to look at this long thread uh that's that's um that will suffice but um i said two months ago or three months ago that i think the u.s 
Fed is going to be the first to have Bitcoin reserves out of all major central banks. And I still believe that. Um, I think the other central banks are stuck in a prisoner's dilemma and they can't get out because if they try to, um, uh, you know, adopt a CBDC or they, they um, the U.S. adopts or, or Tether continues to grow and other uh, digital dollars continue to grow, then the ECB is going to be up shit creek. And they are stuck in a way that they have to go down the CBDC route because any way they turn, they they end up saying, okay, well, CBDC is the way to go. And so I think that they're kind of stuck in this prisoner's dilemma that they, they're going to have to do a CBDC. Now, that would make them hate Bitcoin because Bitcoin offers them an alternative, uh, offers the people an alternative. Um, the only buddy, the only bank that's free to act, that their actions are unencumbered by a larger currency is the Fed. And that's why I think the Fed will eventually just decide to uh, have Bitcoin reserves. They're not going to be stuck in the same game theory that the ECB and the BOJ and those, those players are. So, um, yeah, I was, I was glad to see Logscale put this detailed thing together. I didn't know all these connections. Um, I just kind of came at it from a different angle. But uh, this makes a lot of sense uh, that the White House kind of showed their hand here a little bit by doing this amendment. That I think that was the most important piece of this whole saga was that um, the Yellen, how Yellen came in and offered this uh, second way, which included the proof of work. I thought that was like a wow moment. Yeah, it does seem wow. Um, it's hard for me to like really connect the dots that there's like some grand <laughs> conspiracy, you know, to to make something like this happen just because like this is such a clown show shit show um, yeah. in terms of like all of this and the players and like their use of language and their specificity or their, you know, their uh, how specific they were with their language. Like it, it was just a complete shit show. But at the same time, it, you're right. Like that is just it was just really out of left field. Like I don't think anyone would if you told someone that th that would have happened at the beginning of this thing, I think no one would have believed it. So um, it is really peculiar. Um, I guess is that the is that the way that you think? Like, what what's the cleanest path to U.S. Bitcoin adoption? Do you think? Like, I, I don't really have a lot of faith in in the federal government as it stands right now. My faith is really in the U.S. is in its decentralization in the states in the cities. Um, and like their, that power and the, the mobility of people within, you know, with that, that structure. So I guess like, where do you see Bitcoin adoption happening? Cause again, I, I think it happens on the, the city state level way, way faster than on the federal reserve level. Yeah. I think for the fed specifically, it, it's going to be through the banks. So I think the banks would probably have hold Bitcoin in their reserves, um, and there might be some event where the, the Bitcoin, the amount of Bitcoin that they had, like was made a difference for this bank, some large too big to fail. I don't know. But um, I think that's the best route is through the bank specifically. And then eventually the Fed would just um, adopt this. Now, I think if it went just naturally, it would take another decade for this whole process to play out and the Fed to actually add Bitcoin. But this whole infrastructure bill and the White House amendment that came in with the proof of work exemption, uh, that made me think that it's going to happen a lot faster. Like this log scale is saying uh, on this Twitter thread is that they could have this planned out to happen pretty darn soon. Like in the next 12 months or something that this, this whole um, plan goes into action. So we'll see. It is, it is believing a conspiracy theory. I mean, it would be too good to be true if this was the case, but um I don't know. There's a lot of these dots that are connecting through that uh, theory. So I want to end this talk by just talking about Bitcoin price. Last week when we recorded, Bitcoin price was like 3400 uh, This week, we're sitting at a clean 10K above that, um, 4500 right now, and a lot of volatility, a lot of volatility. Thousand. So Thousand. yeah, like it's just, uh, the, in, in terms of dollar terms, like, it's an insane amount of volatility. Um, but I guess let's talk about like, you know, 
I've been putting out this tweet, like Bitcoin likes to pump when it is being attacked. It's kind of like this idea, like when there are gun laws, people go and buy guns. But like the difference is that Bitcoin's price is so liquid and so fluid that you see it right there on the screen. Uh, I mean, being digital probably helps as well. So, I mean, this is a dynamic of Bitcoin that's very, very interesting, I think. And I'm very curious to hear what you think about the price action in general, as well as uh, maybe like this defense mechanism in terms of price going up when it's, uh, you know, being impinged on or the narrative gets scary. Well, yeah, no, no press is bad press for Bitcoin. And if it's in the headlines, especially if it's, you know, in the headlines of the U.S. Senate and causing a delay in this infrastructure bill, um, I think that is going to get a lot of headlines and a lot of people's tension. Um, people might have thought it was some scam, but now at least they know that legitimate senators are trying to back this space. Legitimate, quote unquote, uh, legitimate people are <laughs> uh, backing this space and want to have a hands-off approach on it. And it wasn't so simple to ram something through. It's not even, now it's not even so simple because it goes to the house and there's all sorts of different uh, ways to amend it. And there's another two year period, at least, I think, right, until it gets implemented. So um, it's not going to be so easy. And I think people see that and they're like, well, damn, you know, every day another person finds out that Bitcoin's not going away and then they have to buy some. And so uh, as if it's in the headlines and, and it's getting attention from senators and Reuters and Washington, um, you know, uh, the uh, Wall Street Journal and stuff that then the people have to buy it because they they understand that it's not going away. Yeah, I mean, again, that's Lindy, right? Um, and I know it's just it's just interesting how quickly the price moves, and it's interesting that you know there's negative news for Bitcoin, and sometimes it affects the price negatively, sometimes it doesn't. But this is like uh, you know kind of like a direct attack. I don't know. But I guess you could point to counterexamples where, hey, you know, China directly attacking their mining industry made the price go down. Uh, so not to say that that is a necessarily always positive, but I like to think that you did point on really fundamental things happening, which is like Bitcoin's legitimacy made itself felt. The Bitcoin community's legitimacy in the US made itself felt and was being recognized globally. And, you know, the price pretty quickly reflected that, which is kind of awesome. Yeah. And um, I had a point on top. Oh, also that it's kind of points out maybe some of our bias when we look at the news headlines. So we might say this is a negative headline, but it's not. It's actually a positive headline. And what's going to tell us that is the price. So if the price is going up, it's actually a positive headline that we just are interpreting as Bitcoin's under attack and you know this is negative. So um, yeah, I think it's actually uh, very good. It's it shows Bitcoin's growth and Bitcoin's the seriousness of Bitcoin right now. It's no longer some guys in their mom's basement uh, playing video games and uh, having some Bitcoin. It's a uh, real serious discussions happening, trillion dollar market. So um, yeah, I think it's obviously really good. Now on the the price for Bitcoin right now, I think we are coming up to some resistance in the price so this this would be um support from back in april and may um also a retracement level from the large drop of uh, the uh, a fibonacci level of the 60 61 so i think there is going to be some resistance here i wouldn't be surprised by a pullback to you know 40 42 000, uh, before we continue higher but i do think that this is um a pretty significant push up and so I think we'll get to all-time uh, challenge to all-time high uh, within the next few weeks. Well, hey, there has been a lot of volatility. You need volatility to keep going up. You need to remove weak hands from their Bitcoin uh, to keep moving up. So it's just a process. Um, and I think it's a beautiful process. Ansel, this is one of our longer rips in a long time. We covered a lot of stuff. I mean, you know, it seems like years are happening in between episodes uh, in weeks and uh, it's exciting. It really is. Yeah, um, we started this morning. We messaged each other and I didn't have a single thing to talk about. And look, we had our longest episode yet. So uh, pretty crazy. 
All right, guys. Well, you know the drill. Follow me at CK underscore Snarks. Follow Ansel at Ansel Lindner. Follow the show at Bitcoin Magazine. And uh, until next time, five-star reviews, share it. Uh, and uh, make sure to check out everything we're doing at Bitcoin Magazine. Make sure you check out everything Ansel is doing on all of his platforms. Uh, all the links will be in the show notes. Catch you later. A quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research.